Good evening, my friends. Good to see you. Uh, I have 90 minutes to go through the biggest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. So I'm going to take every single one of them. Let's, uh, let's begin, if we can, with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Grant, O merciful God, that we may ardently desire, prudently examine, truthfully acknowledge, and perfectly accomplish what is pleasing to thee for the praise and the glory of thy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is Aquinas's great prayer before study. We used to say it before all of the exams that we had in seminary, especially the ones we were pretty sure we weren't going to do very well on. I'm not trying to insinuate anything about this presentation, but it's something that I pray before everything that I do now, because I think it's such a good prayer to be able to seek after what is good to God. So how about this Holy Week? Huh? How about, that was my Seinfeld impersonation for you here. Didn't think I'd do that inside a Catholic church any. What's the deal with Holy Week? Um, how about Holy Week? How about our, our sacred Paschal Triduum? If we're trying to get at the root of it, if we really want to understand what Holy Week is about, we want to make sure that we take advantage of the days that we're given during this week, especially our Paschal Triduum, those last couple days, then we need to know where it came from. We need to know where it all started. And as I allude here, it all began with ashes. It all began with dust, literally, all the way back in the very beginning of the Word of God that I know many of you are very well acquainted with. From the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And if you'll remember, God thought that was pretty good. God looked at all that he created, but mankind, man and woman, as the pinnacle. And he said, this was a good idea. This is good. However, very dramatically, what we experience now also began with ashes. Genesis 2 was the second creation narrative, but Genesis 3 is the story of the fall of mankind. In Genesis chapter 3, after the serpent, the most wise and cunning of all the creatures God had made, slipped his way into the garden. After Eve and Adam both spoke to that serpent, took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and did the one thing. Can you imagine, really, can you imagine what would life be like if there was really only one thing you weren't supposed to do and everything else was free game and you were totally free and you, you didn't have to worry about anything? Your relationship with God was perfect. The way that you looked at and conceived of yourself was spot on. You never second-guessed anything. You never were dissatisfied when you looked in the mirror or when you closed your eyes at night. The relationships that you had with family, with friends, with neighbors, with parishioners, everything was perfect. There was never a word spoken that was spoken out of turn. 
never a moment of gossip or concern, never a moment of malice. Everything was good. And there was just one thing, one thing they were not supposed to do. But we know this story, right? They did that one thing. And in breaking their relationship with God, think about it like the central pillar in a building. The one thing that keeps the whole building standing up. I'm not an architect. I don't really know anything about how that works. But you can imagine it. Once the foundation is cracked, once the most important beam is leveled, then the rest of the structure comes tumbling down. And when Adam and Eve broke their relationship with God, they broke every relationship. As a consequence of their actions, God revealed to them what life would be like. He said, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Does that sound familiar? We'll get there in just a moment. It's true literally, it's true dramatically in the fall. It's also true that it all began with ashes summarily. If it's true that we were all created and we were created really good, and then as a consequence of breaking that relationship with God, every relationship was broken, then there's something else we have to learn summarily. We have, you and I, we have and we share a common and fallen human nature. That's like a lot of philosophy um, if you're not ready for it. So let me break that down kind of simple here. You and I are not just you and I. When we conceive of each other, all of us who are present in these churches sitting in hard wooden pews like every good Catholic for the last 2,000 years, it's not just that you are you and you are you and you are you you are you, and you are you, and I'm me, and we're all different. There are distinctions, but there's something that unites us together. There's something we all have in common. That's part of what makes us one human family, right? We all share a nature, one human nature. What that means is that the things that we share in common are part of what it means to be human. In the beginning, that human nature, like everything, was flawless, was perfect, was exactly how God designed it. But after the fall, after Adam and Eve broke that one rule, then not only were they as individuals broken away from God, but human nature itself, starting with the first parents, became tainted, became cracked, so that you could see that not everything was as good as it was supposed to be. We all have a common nature, and that common nature is fallen. That's important for understanding Holy Week, because Holy Week is the story of our redemption. Holy Week is the story of our redemption. And redemption doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you don't know that you need to be redeemed. Let me say that again. Redemption doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you don't know that you need to be redeemed. For example, say that someone came up to you and they were offering you some medicine for an illness. 
a deadly illness. It was pretty expensive, and there were a lot of side effects. It was going to take your whole life to be able to take dose after dose of this medicine, but if you took it, you were promised life. Would you take it? I'm talking like literally, you're on your way walking into the church today and someone's like, hey, would you like a vial of medicine? No, you wouldn't take it because you're intelligent and beautiful and bright and wonderful. But if you were told that you actually had that illness by someone that you trusted, someone with the authority and the expertise to be able to diagnose you, and they offered you a remedy, well, that remedy all of a sudden becomes a lot more valuable regardless of the cost. If we want to understand Holy Week and the Paschal Triduum, it's important that we know we have a shared human nature and that that human nature is in need of being repaired. Make sense? Good. We talked about that about 40 days ago, around 40 days ago, in the liturgy. On Ash Wednesday, we had a series of blessings over some ashes. We heard the priest say, O God, who desire not the death of sinners, because he doesn't desire it, he desires their conversion. Mercifully hear our prayers, and in your kindness, be pleased to bless these ashes, which we intend to receive upon our heads, that we who acknowledge we are but ash and shall return to dust, may, through a steadfast observance of Lent, gain pardon for our sins and newness of life after the likeness of your risen son. We heard maybe that blessing or maybe another blessing. There's two options in the missal. The second is this, O God, who are moved by acts of humility and, and respond with forgiveness to works of penance. That's why we try and humble ourselves during Lent. Eh? That's why we do acts of penance because it moves God's heart. God, who are moved by acts of humility and respond with forgiveness to works of penance, lend your merciful ear to our prayers, and in your kindness, pour out the grace of your blessing on your servants who are marked with these ashes, that as they follow Lenten observances, they may be made worthy to come with minds made pure to celebrate the paschal mystery of your Son. That is a buzzword. Paschal mystery is one of those dense theology words. I said it before in another homily or presentation recently at one of our great parishes that you can know that it's a church word because it has too many syllables and it doesn't really make sense unless you're in church. Paschal mystery is what I want to talk about today. What is that? I'm sure that you had some great fourth or fifth grade religious ed teacher, maybe in a confirmation class, you had to like fill out a worksheet. Maybe you colored a picture when you were in kindergarten. Maybe you went to Catholic school and you like cheated off the person next to you so that you could write down what the definition was. I don't know, but I want you to know what this means. I want everyone to know what this means. The Paschal Mystery, I've highlighted in red here, Christ's work of redemption accomplished principally by his passion, death, resurrection, and glorious ascension, whereby dying, he destroyed our death, and rising, he restored our life. 
Paschal mystery is some, I don't know who came up with it. It was made popular by a French person and just like a French person to try and make something simpler. If you want to talk about a whole bunch of different things at once, huh? you want to talk about not just Christ's death, not just his passion, not just his resurrection, not just his ascension, but all of it together. You use the word Paschal mystery. Does that make sense? Okay, good, because that's going to be important as we keep going on. And if we're being honest, it's going to be important for the rest of your life. The Paschal mystery is the one saving event that constitutes Christ's whole life. Paschal is a word that literally just means Passover. So when we hear about a Paschal mystery, it's just the Passover mystery. And mystery means mystery. I'm not redefining that for you because you hopefully know that already. The Paschal mystery, though, it's celebrated and made present in the liturgy of the church. Wisdom be attentive. Paschal mystery is all the stuff that Jesus did, right? Great. Summarize it. Asterisk it. Remember it. But what's very important for us as Catholics is that that whole thing that is the Paschal mystery is made present in the liturgy of the church, and its saving effects are communicated through the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, which renews the paschal sacrifice of Christ as the sacrifice offered by the church. In sum, there's something you know about God, and it's important here. He wanted everyone to be saved. He didn't want to spit on us, kick us away, and say, better luck next time, kid. He wanted everyone to be saved, and in order to do that, he called a people. He did mighty works to deliver them. He made a covenant with them, and he spoke to them by the prophets. Have you read that story before? It's in a really big book. I think it's for sale on Amazon. You can probably find some copies in Barnes and Noble. Um, it's called The Bible. And uh, highly recommend. Great reviews um, if you've not seen it before. But the story of the Bible is the story of the Paschal mystery. God wanted everyone to be saved, so he did something about it. He called the people first. Then, with the people he called, he did mighty works to deliver them out of slavery. After he did that, he spoke to them over and over again through the prophets and made covenants with them. Covenants, another buzzword in the church, are promises. But not just any promises. Covenants are promises that mean so much that the two people who promise each other a covenant become a family. Marriage is a good example of a covenant. Adoption is another wonderful example of a covenant where people who were maybe previously unrelated in love, so much are they in love, they promise each other something and they become a family. God made covenants. And that's good. But here's the kicker to this story of the Bible. All of that stuff, all of it, I know there's some college students in the back. You probably did some salvation history, right? Yeah, hopefully. If your Bible study leaders know what's good for them, you did salvation history. Uh, all of that stuff that is salvation history, that was just a preparation. That wasn't even the real thing. That was consolation. All of it was preparing people for the big show. It was preparing people for the culmination, 
the, the thing that all of it was pointed towards, which is Jesus. Jesus who made it possible for human beings to be reconciled with God. That was the kicker, right? Well, this is the kicker to the kicker. Okay, so there's the whole story of the Old Testament, which is beautiful. It's the story of our fallenness. And it's important that we know that we're fallen. All of that was meant to be able to give us the answer, the solution, the cure, the redemption, the salvation. All of it was meant to point us towards Christ so that when Christ came, we could know him and we'd be ready. But it's not magic. (laughs) The reconciliation and redemption Christ won has to be communicated to and received by those he won it for. So Christ brought redemption, but it's not just like, poof, everything's great now, people, so go ahead and do whatever you want because we don't care anymore. God made it great. No, he made it great, but you're still free. Do you know that? He did a big thing. But you can still say no if you want to. If you want, you can reject him. And that is totally in your power. The reconciliation and redemption Christ won has to be communicated. That means it has to be spoken, shared, given to us. And then it has to be received by those he won it for. So how do we do that? As the Father sent Christ? Christ sent the apostles, empowered by the Spirit. The apostles preached the gospel of Christ's redemption, and then they brought it into effect. They they made it happen. How did they do that? Through the sacraments, through the sacrifice and the sacraments, the center of the whole liturgical life. This uh, this picture that I have here over on the side, can you see it? Is it too bright still back there? Uh, This is a, a beautiful icon from the Byzantine and Orthodox tradition. It's a a picture of the resurrection, and it's got the whole idea of everything we just talked about held within it in this one picture. So who do you got front and center here? Jesus. Good job. I heard it in the back first. This is Jesus, and Jesus, you can see, is rising. You can tell he's rising because of the golden lines behind him. That's how artists communicate resurrection. Christ is rising. You can see that he's standing on top of a cross and that this cross, it's almost like a bridge over a chasm. It's almost like something you would pass over. Eh? Mm. Along the side of Christ are a whole bunch of figures that have golden halos. Typically in Roman Catholic art, we look at that and we think about the saints. But, okay, this is John the Baptist. This is David, King David. This is Saul. This is Moses and Elijah. These are figures from the Old Testament, the ones who were preparing for the culmination. You can see Christ rising is pulling a man and a woman out of their graves. Do you know who that is? That's Adam and Eve. This is a communication that says what Jesus did goes back all the way to the beginning. It's not just something for us now only. It stretches back into time and has consequences. Down below, it's too dark to see right now, but there's a figure of a person bound. That's the figure of Satan. Remembering the parable in the gospel that when a strong man has possession of a house, 
He remains there until a stronger one comes and binds him. Christ is the stronger one. He binds Satan and kicks him down into the pit, raising up all those who were previously enslaved to him. That's a lot because it's everything. But that's the Paschal mystery. And that's what we need to be able to understand if we're going to understand the Triduum. This is another little bit of theology that we're going to take the density and condense it, break it down, make it digestible, right? Just like you used to have like Flintstone vitamins when you couldn't swallow pills. Faith is not just an intellectual assent to a series of dogmatic propositions. That means faith isn't just for your brain. It's the awakening consciousness of a divine and human history. It's slowly becoming aware that Wait, a lot of things have been happening in the world, like since way before I was even here. It's the sacred history of salvation. And it should become and may actually become our history. The story of salvation history, all the stuff in the Old Testament, the Paschal mystery, this picture that we saw just a moment ago, the the most important part of that is that that's your history. That's your story. That's a picture of your destiny. There's a a great way that I like to communicate this. I don't know how many people are familiar with Lord of the Rings, have ever read the books, watched the movies, uh, read the gossip about the Amazon series that's going to be coming out uh, presumably in a few months. Um, But there's a character in the Lord of the Rings called Samwise. And I think that's a very appropriate name uh, because he's affectionately called Sam, but he's also very wise. And there's a scene in the books that uh, is profound and powerful that they get like sort of okay in the movies. They have it in there, but they cut it short. I don't know. Maybe maybe Peter Jackson was on a budget. But uh, in this scene, Sam and Frodo, the two main characters who are on this epic quest across country and through desolate land, into what is assuredly their own doom to save the whole world, they start reflecting on their childhood. They start thinking about the stories that their parents used to tell them, the the books that they used to have read to them. And they start reflecting on how important those stories were to growing up. Sam says, we wouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about it before we started, but I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo. Adventures, I used to call them. I used to think they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them. Because those things were exciting and life was a bit dull. A kind of sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have just been landed in those important stories. Usually their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had plenty of chances, of, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we wouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. Wouldn't have heard their story. We hear about those as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you. At least, not to what folks inside a story, not outside it, call a good end. You know, coming home, finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. 
I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. And here, their conversation between Frodo and Sam, it starts to shift a little bit. Before, they were just remembering something old that they learned when they were little kids. Now they're starting to reflect on themselves. These stories that we heard, they were all great. But what about my story? He starts to reflect upon one story that he heard in particular. It's a, it's a love story called uh, Baron and Luthien. Baron was a man. Luthien was an elven princess. Elves aren't real. It's make-believe. But there was a little bit of tension, right? They, they were falling in love, but they weren't the same. And so Baron, the man, goes to Luthien's dad and is like, hey, I want to marry your daughter. And like any good protective father, he says, yeah, that sounds great. How about you just go to the most dangerous, terrible place in the world and hopefully you die? Uh, and Baron said, deal. Baron said, I'm about it because that's how much I want this. So he goes to this, this dark dungeon where the most evil king in history held this one special diamond. The diamond was called a Silmaril. And if he got that diamond, then he also got the love of his life. So they're reflecting on that story. And Sam says, Baron, now he never thought he was going to get that Silmaril. And yet he did. And that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course. And it goes on past the happiness into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and it came to Arendil. And why, sir, I never thought of that before. We have that diamond. You've got some of it in the glass that the lady gave you. Why, to think of it, that story is still going on. Don't the great tales ever end? Don't the great tales ever end? And the answer to that question is no. Now, this is all make-believe, and if you're getting lost in the make-believe, then let me translate this for you, because it's an analogy. In this story, Sam and Frodo were thinking about a really cool story their dad told them when they were little. So cool was that story. Oh, and it was dangerous, and it was full of drama. And they said, well, we've got hope, because at least our story is better than that one. But then they found out that the details of that story never wrapped up, kept going. And that their story was the next chapter of that story. This is true for you. The story of the Bible is not just a piece of literature. It is not just something from a long time ago. Every time that you kneel down to pray and you address God as Father, every time you experience the Paschal mystery in sacrament in the Eucharist, you have the opportunity of having the same experience that Sam had. Wait a minute. That story that I heard about Abraham, about Moses, about David, what, why, it kept going on. And come to think of it, we're still in communion with the same God today. Don't these great stories ever end? And the answer for you, just like for Sam, is no. They don't ever end. So with that as a setup, I'm going to fly through the triduum. Triduum is a word pronounced triduum, not triduum. Uh, some people you'll hear like turn the duh into a je. I don't know where that comes from. My mom's a speech therapist and I'll have to ask her about it. But triduum means three days, triduum, and indicates the period beginning with the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday and concluding with evening prayer on Easter Sunday. 
So diving right into Holy Thursday, there's a lot, and you may know this already, you've been to Holy Thursday before, there's a lot that goes into Holy Thursday, right? When it comes to all of the different aspects, what I find is sometimes people get a little bit jealous for their favorite aspect. They want to kick out the other ones because they want the spotlight shown on the one that's most important to them. But what's really important to remember is that each aspect of what goes on in Holy Thursday, each aspect of the liturgy, are like notes on a piano. I was a music major before, so this is just sort of how I, I think, how I consider things. If you've got one note, for example, hmm? I don't even know if this piano works. We're going to find out. It does. This is a C. C sounds like this. And that's great. Um, if you wanted to have a song about the note C, it would probably sound like this. And let's be honest, that's beautiful. No, it's monotonous. But other notes on the keys, they can reveal something to you about C. For example, this is C with E. Now, hearing that, you've learned something new about the note that you already had, and you learned a new note. But hold on a second. This is C and E flat. And it communicates something completely different than C with E. Eventually, as you start adding other notes, perhaps C, E flat, G, B flat, F, all of a sudden you have some thing that you didn't have in the beginning. And that's a lot like Holy Thursday. It's not just about one particular aspect. It's about all of them coming together and coloring each other, revealing each other, so that the aspect that maybe you're comfortable with, familiar with, maybe the thing you know, you get to see in even greater depth and with more color and sound because of the other things that are going on in Holy Thursday. So in Holy Thursday, there are four things that we're going to talk about. First, this is technically outside of the Triduum, but who's counting, is the Chrism Mass. Second is the Mandatum. That's a Latin word that means mandate, predictably. And third, we're going to talk about the foot washing, and last, the Last Supper, appropriately. This is a picture of the Chrism Mass in Rome years ago, before social distancing was a thing. If, do, do you notice anything about what's going on in this picture? About who these people are? Do you know who these are? You can see like a little stole there. These are all priests. These are all priests. And the Chrism Mass, which does a lot of things, is particularly focused on revealing to us the priesthood. You can see Pope Francis up there like a little speck uh, with all of his priests. But in the Chrism Mass, this is the text that we have at the beginning, an entrance antiphon. Usually it'll be set to chant or some sort of beautiful music. Jesus Christ has made us into a kingdom, priests for his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Right from the first words of the Chrism Mass, the priesthood takes the four. This is 
what is prayed right before the Eucharistic prayer. After that, the Lord be with you, lift up your hearts. You know the part. Uh, then the priest or the bishop would say, for by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you made your only begotten son high priest of the new and eternal covenant. We learned that word already, didn't we? This is a covenant that's new and it's eternal. It lasts forever. And Christ is the priest of that covenant. By your wondrous design, you were pleased to decree that his one priesthood should continue in the church. For Christ not only adorns with a royal priesthood the people he's made his own. Who's that referring to? You. It's referring to all of us. Christ adorns with a royal priesthood everyone. Do you know what that means? That means that you are able to relate to God. You're able to offer something to God. The most important thing that you can offer to God is yourself because you have a share in Christ's priesthood. Christ does adorn with a royal priesthood everyone he's made his own, but with a brother's kindness, he also does something more, something else. He chooses men to become sharers in his sacred ministry through the laying on of hands. Those who he chooses are to renew in his name the sacrifice of human redemption. That's the Paschal mystery. This is why we did all the, spent the time on the stuff that wasn't Holy Week first. You, I'm getting nothing. Okay, great. Uh, it's fine. Um, they're to renew in his name the sacrifice of human redemption, to set before your children the Paschal banquet, to lead your holy people in charity, to nourish them with the word and strengthen them with the sacraments as they give up their lives for you your priests, and for the salvation of their brothers and sisters. They strive to be conformed to the image of Christ himself and offer you a constant witness of faith and love. The bishop turns at a certain point in the Mass and speaks directly to his priests. And this is something, I'm sharing all this with you. I'm sharing this text with you because, A, if we want to understand like what the church thinks about the stuff she's doing, might as well just read it. She's not like hiding it. It's not a secret. I think sometimes because of like Hollywood, we get this idea that like, oh yeah, but all of the old white guys in Rome have these secrets. They're not telling us about what's really going on. No, it's all published. Like I just, I found PDFs of it online. You could probably Google it. Um, but true, we, we look at the text here. Second, I share this with you because not everyone gets to hear this, not, be, not because it's held secret, but because people don't always show up to the chrism mass. It's in Lafayette. That's like a two-hour drive. And sometimes you don't want to spend gas when it's 270, right? I get it. Don't worry. I have a car too. One time in my first parish, one time I was stopped at a stoplight and a girl from our youth group was stopped at the other side of the stoplight. And she saw me and like her eyes got really wide and she was almost afraid and I talked to our youth minister later, and she said, yeah, you really scared her. She didn't think priests were allowed to drive. <laughs> Here's me, Father Cody, breaking rules. But anyway, suffice to say, this text is very important. The bishop will address his priests, your priests, and he'll say this, beloved sons. Isn't that a beautiful way to start? The bishop exercising his fatherhood says, beloved sons, on this, the anniversary of that day when Christ conferred his priesthood on his apostles and on us, are you resolved to renew in the presence of your bishop and God's holy people the promises you once made? It's like this chrism mass, a vow renewal. If you celebrated your anniversary with your spouse 
and you each year were to go over the vows that you made. That's what we do in this chrism mass as priests. He says, are you resolved to be more united with the Lord Jesus and more closely conformed to him? What does it mean to be conformed? It means you're going to, like, like a cookie cutter, right? To cut away all the nonsense that doesn't look like Jesus and to be more conformed, like putty in the hands of God. Denying yourselves, confirming those promises about sacred duties towards Christ's church, which prompted by love of him, you willingly and joyfully pledged on the day of your priestly ordination. Are you resolved to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God in the Holy Eucharist and the other liturgical rites, and to discharge faithfully the sacred office of teaching, following Christ the head and shepherd, not seeking any gain, but moved only by zeal for souls? This is what your priests are literally, literally called to do by the bishop. And this chrism mass, which is ordinarily meant to be celebrated on a Thursday, we're actually celebrated on Tuesday here, which is fine. It's going to be tomorrow, tomorrow at 11 o'clock. Your priests will be hearing these words from the bishop and saying, yes, I do. I am. I want this. And I hope as you hear this presentation and just as you get to know Father DiCarlo, Father Underwood, myself, Father Bob, obviously, and the great priests you've had in the past, I hope that you know and see in our hearts that we really do want this <laughs> so bad. After he speaks to the priest, the bishop turns to the people and says, as for you, dearest sons and daughters, pray for your priests that the Lord may pour out his gifts abundantly upon them and keep them faithful as ministers of Christ, the high priest, so that they may lead you to him, he who is the source of salvation. I'm skipping ahead just a little bit here because I found this wonderful homily that was preached by the Archbishop of Miami last year in 2020 at his chrism mass. I thought it kind of hit home. He said, Today, all priests feel a special stirring in our hearts as we recall the events that transpired in that upper room on the eve of Christ's passion. Like Peter, when Jesus drew near him to wash his feet, we can protest our unworthiness. No, Lord, I'm not worthy to be your priest. And this is perhaps fitting, for our gift, the gift of priesthood, is not given to us for our sakes, but for yours. He also says in there, you will no doubt remind us of our unworthiness. <laughs> and there's a little bit of reality in there. But he, he embraces that. He says, please do remember our unworthiness, but not to throw it in our faces. For most of us, most of the time, are acutely aware of our faults and shortcomings. Most of us, most of the time, know <laughs> that we've messed up and that we don't measure up. We remember at the end of the day as we do our examines at night prayer and say, oh my gosh, how could I have said that? Why didn't I respond to that? How could I have messed this up so much? We know, just as you know. But do remember our unworthiness, and so pray for us. Pray for your priests. All of you want to need good, faithful priests. You must never tire of asking God on your behalf and on ours. Pray that we be the priests you need, the priests you deserve. Pray that you will never lack for such priests. There's a reason that we celebrate the priesthood on the Chrism Mass. Remember, we saw this slide earlier, that as the Father sent Christ, 
Christ sent his apostles. And do you know what we call apostles today? We call them bishop or your excellency. Uh, Bishops and archbishops are the successors of the apostles. They're filling the same office, sitting in the same chair. They have the same responsibilities. And we priests around the diocese, we're an extension of the message and the office that the bishop has. So Father sent Christ. Great. Christ wanted help. So he sent out apostles. And those apostles he sent, empowered by the Spirit, with the gospel in hand, with redemption, and brought it into effect, all of the Paschal mystery, through the sacrifice and the sacraments, which are the center of the whole liturgical life. We focus on the priesthood and the chrism mass because it's our job to bring you the Paschal mystery. If I'm not doing that, I will answer for it. Which is pretty good motivation to do it. Along with that, at the Chrism Mass, we call it the Chrism Mass because at that Mass, all of the priests renewing their promises together with the bishop will consecrate holy oil. And that oil is the means by which the sacraments and the grace that God is pouring out for you is given to you. People who are planning to be baptized this year will be anointed with chrism oil, with the oil of catechumens. People who are going to be confirmed are going to be anointed with that same chrism oil. The sick, those who are dying, especially in a year of pandemic, as we recover from that, are going to be anointed with the oil of the sick. And priests also will be ordained with this oil. All the symbolism of the oil is a reminder to us that God wants to pour out these graces if we'll receive it. And all of that is connected to the priesthood. Moving on from the priesthood, we remember that word mandatum. Mandatum comes from the Latin mandatum, it means mandate. And the one time we hear a mandate in the Last Supper is when Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Let me ask you a question while I take a sip of water. Is that a new commandment? You think the apostles are like sitting in the upper room and they're, you know, this is a pretty dramatic moment and Jesus is being very mysterious as always. And Jesus is like, I give you a new commandment. And they're all like, whoa, okay, maybe it's going to happen. And he says, love one another. And they're like, what? I never thought of that before. That's amazing. No, that's not the new commandment. This is new though. Not just love one another. That's easy. That's old. We've done that. Love one another as I have loved you. He's saying you love now like I love. That's the command. That's the mandate. And how does Christ love? He loves by pouring himself out on the cross. You love until it hurts. You love and you sacrifice of yourself for others. I give you a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. This is how all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, this love, my love for one another. 
This is communicated in Holy Thursday during the Mass in a couple different ways. One of the ways, and people don't know this because it's not often done, we're not allowed to do it this year because we're not allowed to have processions and stuff, but next year, work with me. Hopefully, we'll all be COVID-free, and it'll be great. But during the offertory, as the bread and the wine are brought up, as the collection baskets are normally going around, Holy Thursday's Mass actually asks that gifts for the poor be collected at the foot of the altar. That this is not just a religious ceremony we go through without any connection to the world. Actually, so connected is it to the world that gifts for the poor should be connected to the sacrifice offered. While the people sing, Ubi caritas est vera, that's where charity and love prevail. Where true charity is dwelling, God is present there. By the love of Christ, we have been brought together. Let us find in him our gladness and our pleasure. May we love him and revere him, God the living, and in love respect each other with sincere hearts. This is the mandate. This is the love. And as we bring forth gifts for the poor, we're recalling Christ's command, love one another. It goes on, I'll spare you. But we learn also another thing about how we demonstrate this love. This document here is Latin. You don't need to be able to pronounce it. Don't worry, it's another church word, but it's a document that was about Holy Week, Pascalis Solemnitatis. And what it says is it's more appropriate that the Eucharist be born directly from the altar by the deacons or acolytes or extraordinary ministers at the moment of communion for the sick and infirm, not even waiting for the end. As soon as it's present on the altar, the church says, go out to the sick. Go out to the ones who can't receive it, who can't be here. Deliver this expression of Christ's love to other people so that the grace can be communicated and other people can receive it. Just like we said in the beginning, this mandate to love one another, which also comes together in the foot washing. After the homily, where a pastoral reason suggests it, the washing of feet follows. Again, not this year because of COVID. We're very upset about it, unless you want to have your feet washed by a Clorox wipe, but I think that sort of takes the sacramentality away from it. I don't know. I'm not actually offering that for anyone who's listening. Uh, that's not a thing I'm going to do, no matter how much you pay me. Sorry. Uh, when it comes to the foot washing, though, this is, this is also very important. If in the chrism mass we focused on the priesthood, good, and then we also heard this commandment to love one another, which the priests are vowing they will do at the chrism mass, here we see a greater expansion in the foot washing. The current instruction for the washing of feet allows pastors to select a small group of the faithful to represent the variety and the unity of each part of the people of God. Such small groups can be made up of men and women, and it's appropriate that they consist of people young and old, healthy and sick, clerics, consecrated men and women and laity. Do you know why this is part of the instruction? Because love one another is not just for priests. It's for all of us. Christ died for all of us. And so his commandment is meant for all of us. This uh, amalgamation of people in every walk of life is symbolic of the whole church, 
old, young, men, women, priests, laity, whatever. It's symbolic of Christ's body. All of us bound together share that one unity, which is so beautiful and so important. The washing of feet on Holy Thursday has taken many forms throughout the centuries, whether in cathedrals or abbeys or churches, carried out by bishops or abbots or priests upon subjects who were clerics, monks, or the poor. The gesture is not intended to be a staged historical reenactment. This is a real thing that I want to make sure people know. I, in, I don't even remember where I was, but it was sometime while I was a priest. Someone got upset with me um, for the liturgy. I, I don't remember exactly what was going on, but one of their criticisms or their recommendations was that I start wearing Birkenstocks. And I said, well, why? I have some. But I said, why? And he said, well, because that's what Jesus would have worn. And I said, huh, huh, I didn't know that before, that Jesus, the poor man from Nazareth, could afford some expensive German leather, size 43. Uh, not really sure about that, but the point being that that was not something that I do, as you can tell, um, not out of some sort of scorn or, I, I can have Clarks instead. It's not really about that. The point is that it's not the mass or the foot washing or any of the things we do in the liturgy are not meant to be a reenactment. It's not a play. It's not us dressing up so that we can look just like they did in Palestine all the way back 2,000 years ago. No, because do you know what that would be? That would be just remembering the old story. But we're not here just to remember the old story. We're here for this story, this story which is ours, present now and present in the future, so that even the things that are yet to be revealed, or are literally revealed, like the book of Revelation, where we hear about a heavenly liturgy, all of those things come to one point in the liturgy. All people present, past, and future, united in Christ, celebrate this one Mass together. So with the foot washing, it's not intended to be a staged historical reenactment, but a sacramental expression of Christ's humble gesture of charity and service. It's a sign. It's a symbol. It's saying, look, look what this points out. And what it points out is, again, charity. If we want to understand the foot washing best, it starts here with humility. Humility is the key to successful participation during the action for all involved. Whether you're having your feet washed or whether you're washing feet, you got to be humble. And let me tell you, that's also a real thing. I've washed some really like ingrown toenails before on Holy Thursday. It's a real thing. I've also, this was when I was in high school, we did a foot washing at a retreat as like a sort of symbol sort of thing. And they like tapped me on the shoulder. Um, and I was a freshman in high school, and this junior who was on the baseball team for my high school tapped me on the shoulder, and he's like, hey, Cody, can I, can I wash your feet during this thing? I'll, I'll call you up. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I got like, I puffed my chest up like, yeah, this guy is like so much older than me, and he's a pitcher for a he wants me to wash my feet? Okay, I guess I'm pretty awesome. And so like, I'm full of pride and eventually he taps me, calls me up and I get up and it's like this profound moment of silence, like, you know, low lighting. And he's got a bar of Irish spring and like a little like mop bucket. To this day, when I smell Irish spring, I think of the foot washing on Holy Thursday. Can't help it. And he's got that out and I'm like, yeah, 
I'm kind of the man. Sorry, people move out of the way. I got to have my feet washed. And I take off my shoe and my sock and it is just covered in black sweaty lint. And I was just like, oh, and I like started trying to like wash it off before he could. And he was like, no, it's cool. I was like, okay, sorry. But I didn't get it because I wasn't being humble. Humility is the key to successful participation for all involved. The priest who washes, the people who look on, those whose feet are washed. In the same way that St. Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Many a proud heart may find it preferable to do the washing rather than receive the gesture. Yet we must recall that Lent began grounded in humility. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so it's fitting that at its conclusion, we should also be washed in humility. This washing of the feet, so powerful in its symbolism, requires virtue in us. Charity, humility, the love of Christ by all, priest and lay. The last part of this Holy Thursday is the Lord's Supper. Every Mass, we celebrate and remember the Lord's Supper. We make it present. But on this day in particular, we celebrate the actual historical time that Christ instituted the Eucharist. This, again, is the preface. That's the, the Lord be with you, lift up your heart. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God, it is right and just. For he is the true and eternal priest who instituted the pattern of an everlasting sacrifice and was the first to offer himself as the saving victim, commanding us to make this offering as his memorial. As we eat his flesh that was sacrificed for us, we are made strong. And as we drink his blood that was poured out for us, we are washed clean. Once the priest offers the Mass's prayer after communion, after this celebration of the Eucharist, after the foot washing, after all of the holy oils have already been consecrated, the priests have renewed their vows, after we've been given a new commandment, a procession forms in which the Blessed Sacrament, Christ himself, is carried through the church to another place apart from the main altar. This practice, too, finds its prefigurement in the desert wanderings of the chosen people. Just as the people were led through the desert, so how many times, can, can I, you can raise your hand, you can be honest. How many of you uh, roll your eyes every Ash Wednesday when priest says, Lent is a journey? Thank you for the honesty. Sometimes it takes that. But actually, it is. As we remember the 40 days in the desert, it was literally a journey for these Israelites who crossed through the Red Sea, who were slaves and then were free. And they had to walk a long way, and their hearts had to change a lot as a people. Lent is that kind of journey, and this procession is symbolic of that same journey that we've all taken and that Israel took. The Blessed Sacrament arrives, as it were, as to us, as a new chosen people. The church is wandering in the desert, moving ever closer to heaven's promised land, and fed along the way by the true bread of life. The Holy Thursday profession features as yet another meaningful sacramental action. I'm going to skip most of that, but the important thing is all that stuff comes together. You get me? Good. Just as the notes on the piano, the priesthood, the commandment to love, the participation of all of us, lay and cleric together, and most importantly, also the sacraments, Christ's grace delivered for you, for you, your story. These all come together in one sacred night. 
Then we move on to Good Friday. In Good Friday, just like in Holy Thursday, there's multiple parts. I'm going to speak a little bit more quickly. I know I'm already speaking quickly, and some of you are saying, how can you speak more quickly? Try me. Some people have told me I would be a really good auctioneer. Um, but in Good Friday, there are three parts. First, the intercession for the world. We pray for the entire world. Next, there's the adoration of the Holy Cross. And finally, this day is the day we celebrate the origin of the church. So beginning with Good Friday at the conclusion of Holy Thursday, this is what it will look like if you're Pope Francis and, and St. Peter's. Here, it'll be something like that. The priest dressed in red will process in and after reverencing the altar, will lay prostrate in reverence for the cross as everyone else kneels. This was last year, you can tell because they're socially distanced. But this is a quiz for you. Who knows what the entrance antiphon for Good Friday is? You've heard it before. You've probably heard it a lot. You've probably done it a lot. This is what it sounds like, are you ready? That's it. There is no entrance antiphon on Good Friday. There is no sign of the cross. There's no beginning of the liturgy. Do you know why? Because we never ended. We never ended. On Holy Thursday, after all of those beautiful symbols we celebrate, our Lord in the Eucharist is brought to a particular place where he's reposed, and there's no dismissal. There's no final blessing. There's none of that. One leaves in silence, and then we back together again on Good Friday, again in silence. This is one liturgy, one whole thing. This is the prayer, though, and this is another important point. Normally, do you know what the prayer at the beginning of the Mass is called? It's called, yeah, thank you, someone. Yeah, there you go. Gold star for you. It's called a collect, uh, which is spelled like the English word collect. And that's what that prayer is meant to do. The priest says, let us pray. And then there's meant to be a pause. And that's the time where you, in your mind and in your heart, prepare the prayer that you're bringing into that mass, the prayer that you want to offer, the thing that unites your life to this mass in that pause. And then the priest, after the pause, collects all the prayers from everyone together in one big prayer. It's always called the collect. But on Good Friday, it's not called the collect. It's just called prayer. And the prayer is this. On the day when we remember Christ crucified, remember your mercies, O Lord, and with your eternal protection, sanctify your servants, that's you and me, for whom Christ, your son, by the shedding of his blood, established the Paschal mystery, again, from the beginning. When you go to Good Friday now and you hear that term, you got it like you're going to know. And you're going to look around and be like, you hear that word, Paschal Mystery? I don't know if you'll say anything else besides that, because I don't know what like your inner dialogue is like. I've never heard it. But that's what's going to happen. After that silence, after the continuity from one liturgy to the next, the next thing that happens is the solemn intercessions on Good Friday. This is straight from the catechism, and I think that this is actually a really good affirmation of something that sometimes people have real questions about. Who did Christ come to save? Who did Christ come to save? Our church teaches. He affirms that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. This last term is not restrictive. 
It doesn't mean, well, we don't want to save them. No, it contrasts the whole of humanity with the unique person of the Redeemer who hands himself over to save us. The church, following the apostles, teaches that Christ died for all men without exception. This sentence, like write it down in your Bible somewhere. Pray it when you go home before you go to bed. There is not, never has been, and never will be a single human being for whom Christ did not suffer. That means you. He suffered for you. Are you sure? Am I one of the many? He suffered for you. There's never been a person he didn't suffer for, never a person that he rejected in a way where he said, I don't want to save them. He suffered for all. He suffered for you. And he suffered for that guy across the office from you that you hate. That person who always does the thing that grinds your gears, the roommate who never picks up his laundry. He suffered for every person, and that means that every person is filled with an immense, unimaginable dignity because Christ loved them and died for them. That's a big deal. During this time, because Christ died for all, we pray for all. First, we pray for the Holy Church, and it's like this big, long series of things, right? And sometimes people complain and say, do we have to, like, stand and kneel and stand and kneel? Yes! Yes, you do have to stand and kneel. You don't really have to. But, but how good to be able to offer a sacrifice. I, I think about that every time when, look, I know I'm only 31, but, like, my joints hurt sometimes, too, and that's allowed, so no one get mad at me about it. Every time my knee pops or every time my knees start to get hard on on the, look, I don't even have carpet. I guess you guys have kneelers. I don't got that up there. I think about who I'm praying for in each of these intercessions. The Holy Church, I offer this up for the Pope, for all orders and degrees of the faithful. Next, for catechumens, those who are coming into the church. For the unity of Christians, how dire is that need? For the Jewish people, for those who do not believe in Christ, for those who do not believe in God. Notice as we're going through that we're getting further and further away, right? We start with the Pope, who's like, he's the Pope, um, and, and the church. And then we move all the way down to all Christians. And then for the Jewish people who worship the same God, but not Christ. Then for those who don't believe in Jesus. Then for those who don't believe in God. Then for politicians. We always thought that was hilarious when we were practicing for it. For those in public office, okay, great, sure. (laughs) And then finally, for those in tribulation, those who are suffering, those who need it, we pray for the whole world on Good Friday because that's the day when Christ died for the whole world. The next thing that happens is the adoration of the cross. This is a reflection written by a guy who I've referenced before. He was a second Vatican council father. He wrote the uh, second Eucharistic prayer or rather translated it for us today. So if you've ever been to Monday uh, noontime, 20 minute mass, you can thank Louis Bouillet for giving you a very short Eucharistic prayer. He says this though, from one point of view, the crucifixion is murder. Its perpetrators are men, all men in as much as they are sinners. And in the wake of sinful men, this prince of darkness dominating them and leading them at his pleasure. From one point of view, 
That's what the crucifixion is. But from the second point of view, on the contrary, the crucifixion is a sacrifice and its priest is Christ. From the first point of view, the cross appears as a necessity external to Christ, something that was imposed upon him, which he couldn't escape. But from the second point of view, the crucifixion is the sovereignly free act of which Jesus said, I lay down my life. No one taketh it away from me, for I have received this power from my Father. On the one side, we see the triumph of Satan, the hour of the prince of darkness. On the other, the sovereign sacrificial act of the omnipotent, all-powerful, the hour of the Son of Man. The contradiction between these two things is not real. It just appears as a contradiction. Christ's sacrifice is that deadly combat against the powers of darkness, the necessary counterpart of the reconciliation with God. The glorification of Christ here, as everywhere else in the fourth gospel, that's John, is the cross. Now, this seems like you know, sometimes people don't get that. You start like a Bible study on the gospel of John, and you say, what is the moment of glory in the gospel of John? And people will say, the resurrection. And we'll say, well, the ascension, not in John. They'll talk about all these different little things that are in there, right? And very few will identify and say the cross is actually the moment of glory. And it is. And this is how awesome Jesus is. This is how clever, crafty. It's almost as if he infiltrated into fallen humanity, right? Like he came almost like it was a secret. He came in the dead of night. He lived his life. He performed these miracles and slowly revealed himself. And just when Satan and the evil powers thought they had him, yes, finally, they take up their weapon, a cross, and they shove it against his body. And he embraces it and turns it back on them. That's glory, y'all. That is glory. This glory is believable only if we do not separate Good Friday from Holy Thursday. It's not just some cross that happened to Christ. It was something he chose, something he offered. Remember, and I went through it sort of fast because I knew we were coming back over here, that the Eucharist, the Last Supper celebrated on Holy Thursday, reveals what's going on on Good Friday. When he says, take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body. When he says, take this, all of you, and drink from it, this is my blood of the new and eternal covenant. He's not just trying to speak in poetry, and he's certainly not trying to be some sort of magician or con man. He's revealing that he's offering body blood, that he knows that less than 24 hours from that moment, this which appears sacramentally will happen literally to him. And that's the Paschal mystery that we celebrate every time we come to a divine liturgy. On Good Friday, the executioners are active. Jesus does not but suffer. Holy Thursday, because it is the hour of the Eucharistic banquet, provides background for everything that we experience as suffering on Good Friday. This is clearly demonstrated by the liturgy, which in celebrating on Holy Thursday, the institution of the Eucharist, ever points out to us the cross. 
while adoring the cross on Good Friday, this mystery salutes the cross as the tree of life planted for the cure of the whole world. Tree of life. Have you heard of that before? It's more than a Terrence Malick movie starring Sean Penn and Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain and other people. It's a weird artsy movie. I was really into it when I was in my artsy phase. Um, more than a movie, though, more than a movie, the tree of life makes an appearance in scriptures. Do you remember where? We're all about trees in the Catholic Church. Laudato si, y'all. We're all about trees. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. This is Genesis 2 in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil gets all the press because bad press is easy, right? We've learned that in so many ways. But the tree of life is at least as important as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Beside here, there's an image. Do you recognize this tree? This is the tree of the cross. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. This is after the fall. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, we got to kick out of Eden. Do you know why he did that? What a mean God we have that didn't want us to live forever. No, no. Think about what had just happened. Adam and Eve had just eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had broken their relationship with everything. And broken as they were, if they would have eaten from the tree of life, then they would have eaten to their own condemnation. They would have been broken forever. So God got them out of Dodge. God got them out of Eden. He put in front of the tree of life a cherubim, that's an angel on fire with a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way from the tree of life. They weren't ready yet. If they ate it like that, it would never be good again. It's almost like God was preparing for something, as if every event that happened from that point on forward through the Old Testament was working towards a culmination of sorts, so that eventually they would be ready. And they were. The cross that we worship, the cross of glory, is the tree of life. And what hangs on the tree of life? Jesus. If you would take fruit from the tree of life so that you could live forever, you eat the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of God who gave himself to you. For veneration of the cross, because this is not just a historical reenactment, like we've said about other things, let a cross be used that is of appropriate size and beauty, recognizing that this is not just remembering a grisly thing, some historical event that happened, but this is also remembering Christ's glory in choosing this, in becoming the tree of life, not the tree of death. So they asked that a cross with substantial beauty be used so that not only the terror of the cross but also the victory of the cross may be embedded in our minds. Both the invitation pronounced at the unveiling of the cross and the people's response should be made in song. 
Because again, this is a moment of glory. Melancholy. Loss. But loss that leads to something. The cross is to be presented to each of the faithful individually for their adoration, since the personal adoration of the cross is a moment uh, and a most important feature in the celebration. We want everyone to be able to adore this cross. Only one cross should be used so that we don't get the idea of having a lot of different pieces of salvation. There's one. It's Christ's cross. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And it's effective. It does what it's set out to do. The last thing on Good Friday is that it's the origin of the church. You might remember that at a certain point in time on the cross, Jesus' side was pierced with a lance and out came blood and water. Blood and water, which are symbols to us of sacraments, sacraments given by the church. But there's another meaning, a deeper meaning that I'm going to kind of gloss over here real quick so that I can move on to the Easter vigil. Another time in the scriptures, Something came out of a man's side that was good, very good, that became united in relationship to him. Just as asleep on earth, Adam had Eve, his bride, come out of his side. So Christ, sleeping the sleep of death, pierced in his side, meets his bride coming out of his side, the church. This is the day when the sacraments are born. This is the day when the church is wed to her spouse. And that's all I'm going to say about that. When the distribution of communion has been completed, the ciborium, that's the big gold thing that has all of the Eucharist in it, is taken by the deacon or another suitable minister to a place prepared outside the church, or if we need to, in the tabernacle. And all, after genuflecting to the cross, depart in silence. The altar is stripped and we leave. Again, no final blessing, no closing prayer, no, done, y'all. No, because the liturgy keeps going. Just as Holy Thursday ended in silence and Good Friday began in silence, so now Good Friday moves into Holy Saturday. Let me offer to you something that happens right before the Easter Vigil. It's a thing. It's an event. It's called Saturday. It happens every week, but during Holy Week, it's a lot more important. And it's always, it kind of gets the shaft as far as uh, Holy Week and the Triduum is concerned. We are about Easter, but what goes on during the day on Saturday? It's always sort of odd. Sometimes there's a little baseball on. You know, it's always usually a little bit gray and dreary. It's almost as if the whole world is waiting for something to happen. This work uh, that I'm about to read to you is from the Office of Readings. It's something that anyone can read and pray, but that every priest and religious is required promises to read and pray. It's so ancient, it doesn't have an author. We don't know who wrote it, but it's something everyone reflects on in the church on Holy Saturday. It goes like this. Something strange is happening. There's a great silence on earth today, a great silence and stillness. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. God has died in the flesh and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parent as for a lost sheep, greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death. He has gone to free from sorrow the captives Adam and Eve, he who is both God 
and the son of Eve. The Lord approached them bearing the cross, the weapon that had won him the victory. At the sight of him, Adam, the first man he had created, struck his breast in terror and cried out to everyone, my Lord be with you all. Christ answered him, and with your spirit. He took him by the hand and raised him up saying, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. I am your God, who for your sake have become your son. Out of love for you and for your descendants, I now by my own authority command all who are held in bondage to come forth, all who are in darkness to be enlightened, all who are sleeping to arise. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be held a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. Rise up, work of my hands, you who were created in my image. Rise, let us leave this place, for you are in me and I am in you. Together we form only one person and we cannot be separated. For your sake, I, your God, became your son. I, the Lord, took the form of a slave. I, whose home is above the heavens, descended to the earth and beneath the earth. For your sake, for the sake of man. See on my face the spittle I received in order to restore to you the life I once breathed into you. See there the marks of the blows I received in order to refashion your warped nature in my image. For the sake of you who left a garden, I was betrayed to the Jews in a garden, and I was crucified in a garden. On my back, see the marks of the scourging I endured to remove the burden of sin that weighs upon your back. See my hands nailed firmly to a tree for you who once wickedly stretched out your hand to a tree. Rise, let us leave this place. The enemy led you out of the earthly paradise. I will not restore you to that paradise but I will enthrone you in heaven. Holy Thursday is the day when it's, or pardon me, Holy Saturday, the day when everything is about to happen. The moment of silence anticipates what is just about to come to the fore. In that day, Lucernarium, salvation history, baptismal liturgy, liturgy of the Eucharist. First, the Lucernarium, it's a sign and a symbol of lighting because it's always darkest before the dawn. We have traveled through the Last Supper, through Gethsemane. We've traveled through the cross and into the silence where Christ salvaged all of the souls bound in hell. And now in the darkest moment, the light comes. Like Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light like John says, what came to be through Christ was life, and the life was the light of the human race. And so, in the darkness of night, the Easter vigil begins. The Roman Missal says, a blazing fire is prepared in a suitable place. The church's document goes further and says, insofar as possible, a suitable place should be prepared outside the church for the blessing of the new fire, whose flames should be such that they genuinely dispel the darkness and light up the night. We're not talking about a Bic lighter here, y'all. We're talking about a bonfire, something that lights up the darkness because on the Easter vigil, the moment of resurrection, Christ lights up the night, not dark anymore. 
because he has come and won the victory. He kicked death in the teeth. And now he arises victorious with foot on the head of Satan, firmly secure, and says, pass safely, pass over. The candle is blessed, and it's blessed with this prayer. If you want to know the prayer, you're going to have to go to the Easter Vigil. The candle is lit with this prayer. If you want to know that prayer, you're going to have to go to the Easter Vigil. These liturgical elements and the order in which they proceed recall and fulfill was it which, uh, all that was at one time anticipated thousands of years ago by the Israelites coming out of Egypt. In the Easter Vigil, there's that giant fire, and there's also the giant candle. That's last year's. We'll get another one, and it'll be twice as tall because we haven't had to burn it for baptisms or the Easter Vigil. But that candle is lit from the Easter fire, which let me tell you, as a priest who's had to do that before, that's no easy task. Try and stick that thing into a bonfire. The whole thing wants to melt. Also from the bonfire are taken charcoals to be put into a thurible so that that thurible can then burn incense. So what we have is this big old candle and incense. Do you know what that's supposed to be symbolic of? Do you know what we, the faithful, are supposed to call to mind? Israel was led out of slavery in Egypt by God in the presence of a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And so again in this liturgy, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, lead people out of slavery into freedom. We sing the exalted, which is super long, and I'm not going to sing it for you right now. You'll have to come to the Easter Vigil again. But the exalted is a huge, long chant. Find it on Apple Music or on Spotify. It is a song of victory. It's a song of glory. Exalt, let them exalt the host of heaven. There's a, a line in there that says, let this holy building shake with joy. It's supposed to rouse those sleepers, just like we heard on Holy Saturday. All of this. This is the liturgy of the word in salvation history. Easter Vigil is long. And sometimes people have like a couple issues with Easter Vigil being long. And they say, Father, do we have to have it be this long? Yes. Just like kneeling. No, we don't actually have to have it be that long. But why would you not? And some people say, oh, I don't know, Father. How long do people spend preparing for the Super Bowl? You know, you get together on a Sunday and everyone, and you make your dip and then everyone gets together and they buy the beer and they set up the projector and they have all the commercials and they do all the different things, right? And we watch this entire game and we watch the halftime show and we watch whatever the post-game interviews are going to be and we see who the MVP was and wow, can you imagine it? And then they go to Stephen A. Smith, who's just going to tell you what everyone already said. It's a 24-hour affair. And we don't complain about that. But this Easter Vigil is the most important thing that ever happened in history. And it's going to take a little bit of time sometimes to do. There are seven Old Testament readings, and each of those readings is supposed to take you step by step through the preparation for the Paschal Mystery. You'll hear about creation and how everything was created good. Then you'll hear about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, a foreshadowing of a father offering a beloved son. You'll hear about the passage of Israel, the chosen people through the Red Sea, once slaves, now free. You'll hear from Isaiah about the new Jerusalem, the city that awaits everyone. You'll hear again from Isaiah the salvation that is offered to all, from the prophet Baruch about the fountain of wisdom, Christ himself. 
and eventually from Ezekiel on the creation of a new heart and a new spirit placed within you so that no one will have to say, look, there's God. You'll know it. You'll know it. And it comes through Christ. Ideally, each of these readings is included in this Mass so that the character of the vigil, which demands an extended period of time, may be preserved. That's a representation of the idea of the Paschal Mystery. All the Old Testament was waiting for this culmination. We next go into the baptisms. Baptisms are unique, especially in the Easter Vigil, because we just heard the whole story of salvation. And do you know how often water comes up in the Bible? Like, a lot. Water is all over the Bible. First in creation, when God was creating all of the world, the Spirit hovered over the waters, we're told. Later on, when God looked after the fall and saw that everything he made was corrupt and not good, he cleansed it with a flood. Later, as we've already referenced, the Red Sea, where the sea is parted and people pass over from slavery into freedom. Jonah, who throws himself into the sea and is consumed by a whale to his own demise. John's baptism in the desert. The woman at the well who's promised that if she were to take water from Christ, she would become a living spring welling up within herself. And also the water that came forth from the side of Christ on the cross. It's all over. In baptism, there's a couple different symbols. Water, the font, and oil. Uh, let me tell you about that real briefly. I've got five minutes. I'm going to go five minutes over. It's a thing I always do. And I'm sorry, I guess. When it comes to the symbolism of baptism, this is what we got, okay? First of all, water. Water has a lot of symbols, but two in particular stick out. The first is uh, washing. And that's a little bit intuitive, right? Like we understand washing. Baptism cleanses you, just like when you're dirty because you've been playing outside or you've been working in the yard. All of a sudden, you, you take a shower, you're clean. Baptism cleanses, not only from the outside, but from the inside. It washes away sin. But it does another thing. Baptism is also a symbol of death. Do you know that? Baptism is a symbol of death. And that seems a little counterintuitive. But think about some of those images of water in the scripture, right? The flood brought life, but it also brought death to evil. The Red Sea was a passage of victory for all of Israel, but it was death for Pharaoh and his chariots and charioteers. The water in the scriptures also with Jonah symbolizes an intuition people had. Have you ever swam in a murky lake or gone scuba diving or snorkeling? One time I did, and I, my dad uh, works for a plastics manufacturing company called Industrial Dielectrics, and, uh, which is, I'm sure, a wonderful company if you're watching, but I never knew what that meant growing up. But uh, part of his job was to oversee another factory that was in Puerto Rico, and he would be able to go there from the time I was in high school, like, on to while I was in seminary, maybe once, twice a year, just to make sure that production was up and all that sort of stuff. Well, he took me with him one year. And I had to go, and we were, um, we were snorkeling, right? And this, like, boat. And uh, I went off from the boat, and I got to see, like, all this beautiful coral, um, these gorgeous fish and all this stuff. And I was just so enwrapped in everything I was seeing that eventually I turned back because I thought, it's got to be time to get back to the boat. But from under the water, all I could see was this, like, 
dark shadow. And uh, I mean, you've seen Jaws. I didn't know what was there and I was pretty scared for a second. And in that moment I thought, oh, this is what baptism is like. <laughs> baptism is death because to the early Christian, to the fishermen who experienced the water of the storm that could throw you overboard, who experienced the water underneath and what lay underneath, I don't know, but I heard a story from one guy that there was this tentacle thing that whatever it is, is threatening and scary. Legend in the scripture speaks of Leviathan under the water and Christ who goes under the earth goes under the water. As he does battle with Satan, he does battle with the monster and he wrangles it. And then having died, he rises again. So St. Paul says, for all who are pursuing baptism, do you not know that you who are baptized are baptized into Christ's death? You are, so that that way you can rise with him too. This is the both and of scripture. If we attach ourselves to Christ in his death, then our death isn't meaningless anymore. Now we have a promise of resurrection. And that means something. There's also uh, the symbol of the font. This picture is not a good picture of a font, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, there's all different sorts of fonts, but what I'm trying to talk about is the early Christian fonts. If you go to like Italy, right, we're talking before Christianity was even legalized. There were fonts that were eight-sided. They were octagonal. Do you know why that's important? Ooh, ooh, ooh. How long did it take God to create everything? Six days. Yes, you're, you're whispering because you're in church, and that's very good of you. Six days to create everything. And then on the seventh day, he rested, right? But on that seventh day, that was the, when everything went awry. That was the day when everything he had made got broken. So what did he do? He went back to work. And now Christ, risen from the dead, rises and recreates the eighth day the final day where all things are made perfect like they're meant to be. The baptismal font would have eight sides, symbolic of the fulfillment of their creation, their potential, what they were meant to be. Now in relationship with God, you get to be it. Congratulations. That's great. Then also we have finally the symbol of the oil. Oil, like water, has a lot of different symbols and uses, but specifically two stick out. One uh, is like, have you ever... Uh, uh, like made a, a vinaigrette or like an oil-based salad dressing before, mixed it yourself, get some on your hands. Any uh, of the, the handsome gentlemen in the congregation used beard oil before? And you get some on your hands, right? You can't just stick your hands underwater to wash oil off because it's not going to wash off. It stays, right? It takes some work to get it off. Because oil has a sign and a symbol of permanence. Once anointed with oil, once received by the Spirit and receiving the Spirit, there's no going back. God doesn't abandon you. He doesn't let you go. You were anointed. You are his forever. The second symbol of oil that's uh, unique and historical is oil was used by both athletes and soldiers. They would anoint themselves in oil before a competition. This is pre-protein regimen, right? This is them saying, I want to be strong for this battle. I want to be ready for this contest. 
I want to come out on top. This was the thing that prepared them for whatever thing or person or army awaited them so that they could also share the victory. Oil used in our sacraments has that same connotation that you'll be prepared, you'll be strengthened for the contest of your life and the contest of your baptism, which is a baptism into death. Confirmation, the quick version is, it's baptism on steroids. Uh, it's the fulfillment of baptism. As we move to our last few slides here, um, the newly baptized and confirmed participate in the Eucharist, not only by exercising their newfound priestly power for the first time. Remember, we're all sharers in Christ's priesthood in one degree. Now, those who are baptized and confirmed get to exercise their priesthood for the first time by giving to God their very selves, but also they get to participate in the Eucharist by receiving from the altar the fruits of the cross, the fruit from the tree of life, Christ and his body as food transformed and transformative. The Easter Vigil marks the anniversary of our own initiation. So if you've already been baptized, congratulations. This is your anniversary. Uh, I, one writer that I, I reference a lot uh, calls this your dies natalis, your birthday, the day of your death and your birth, because baptism is a death, but it's also a rebirth. This is our anniversary of our own initiations in a real way, both spiritually and physically, to see the vigil's outward signs and symbols, darkness and light, paschal candle and smoke, oils and anointings, albs and candles, bread and wine. All of these are manifestations of divine realities in our lives that lead to grace, joy, happiness, and peace. It leads also to divinization, being like God. And the final leg of the journey over Easter's Paschal Passover bridge. This is the final blessing of the Easter vigil, and this is the joy that we are waiting for as we prepare through this holy week. May Almighty God bless you through today's Easter solemnity and in his compassion defend you from every assault of sin. And may he who restores you to eternal life in the resurrection of his only begotten endow you with the prize of immortality. Now that the days of the Lord's passion have drawn to a close, may you who celebrate the gladness of the Paschal Feast come with Christ's help and exulting in spirit to those feasts that are celebrated in eternal joy. Pope Benedict once said, eternal joy, eternal life is not, as the modern reader might immediately assume, life after death in contrast to our present real life now. Eternal life is life itself real life, which can also be lived in the present age and is no longer challenged by physical death. This is the point, to seize life, real life, here and now, real life that can no longer be destroyed by anything or anyone. A distinguishing feature of the disciple of Jesus is that he lives. Beyond the mere fact of existing, he has found and embraced the real life that everyone is seeking. On the basis of such texts, the early Christians called themselves simply the living. They had found what all are seeking, life itself, full and hence indestructible life. This is your life because this is your story. The Paschal mystery 
Christ's passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. The grace given to us through the sacraments, passed on through the priests, that all of us share in by loving as Christ commanded us to, is your story. You know where it's been, but now, just as we heard at the beginning, it's given to you this week, and it's yours to receive, if you will. So my friends, through Passover, pay attention to these signs and symbols. Through the Paschal mystery, be on the lookout for Christ who is haunting your life, waiting to give you himself. Because if you choose him, you will have eternal life, not just later, but right now. So amen, and have a good Holy Week. Now we are going to enter into a time of Eucharistic adoration, a time to, if you like, stay, remain, and pray with our Lord in the Eucharist about this that we're about to enter into, about where we've been through our Lent, and about where we want to end up by this Easter Vigil. You are by no means compelled to stay and pray. If you would like to take a moment to leave, to go have dinner, my dinner has been this water so far, so I understand. Uh, but we want to provide that opportunity so that you can avail yourself of the grace present in the sacrament and make sure that you and God are acquainted as you move into this holy week. We're going to take a moment to tear the screen down, and you can do what you will in the meantime. Thank you very much, and God bless you.